Father, we thank you tonight once again for how you've sustained us, how you've answered our prayers. You've been such a faithful Lord and Heavenly Father to us. We come tonight, Father, from a variety of backgrounds and with a variety of needs, and we know that you know each one of them. None of them escapes you. You look at us tonight not as a group, but as individuals in your presence. And we pray, Father, that your word, your message, and the application that you have for us might speak to our hearts, us, and our lives, that we'd be able to go from here with a renewed joy and a renewed trust in you. How thankful we are for the freedom we have in this country to come together to study the Word of God, to celebrate and worship, to see people make commitments to Jesus Christ, and for us to learn more about you. Help our minds and our hearts to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. We left off, I think, with verse 21 last week, so we want to pick it up, but I just sort of want to backtrack a little bit and and give a little bit of application here before we start. You know, in our home, my son, my wife, and I have different ways that we have devotional times to make the Bible more meaningful. Sometimes we'll sit together and have communion, or sometimes we'll uh, sit and read the Bible together and uh, just read the text and try to apply it, ask questions about it. But often, we do a thing that uh, I invented in our home a few years ago that I call Say, Play, and Pray. It's one of Nathan's favorite little things. He always asks if we could do that. And uh, Say, Play, and Pray is uh, basically where we say the Scripture or we sit down and we read a text of Scripture, a chapter or a story. Then we actually dress up and perform the different roles of those characters. This is quite humorous in our home. And uh, after we play or enact it, then we pray over a lesson that we have learned. And Nathan will often beg me to do say, play, and pray. Dad, please, can we do say, play, and pray tonight? It's a way that he, he's memorized the words and he knows what that means. He loves enacting a scene. And the real value of doing devotions that way, first of all, they're a blast. They're a fun. And my son hopefully will grow up and remember how fun it was to have devotions. When I grew up in my home and I thought of the times that we tried to have as a family, I think of boredom, frankly, because of what I was forced to do. It really wasn't meaningful. I was a kid. I didn't have the attention span or the same needs or wants or desires as adults. But I want him to grow up and think, we had a blast growing up in my family. I remember those things and they paint visual pictures. The tabernacle paints for us a visual portrait of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ for us. And the more I study the tabernacle, the more convinced I am of this. Of course, Jesus, when he was meeting with the disciples after his resurrection, he met two of them on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. Jesus walked alongside of them, incognito, asking them questions. And as Jesus revealed himself to them, he said, Oh, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Messiah to have died and fulfilled all of the scriptures? It says, beginning at Moses. He started revealing, unfolding, unveiling all of the things concerning himself. You know, that is one Bible study I wish were recorded for us. I am sorry that the contents of that Bible study of Jesus Christ to his disciples is not recorded. To hear Jesus unfold the predictions of Moses, probably the types and the shadows, even that we read here in the tabernacle, would have been great. The tabernacle is a picture of Jesus. In fact, as John opens up his gospel, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him. Nothing was made except through his agency. And then down in verse 14, And the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. Or as some versions put it, pitched his tent among us. 
And as you look at the tabernacle, you see the types of Christ in it. First of all, you'd walk up and see the white linens of the outer court, seven and a half feet tall, bright white, speaking of the purity of worship and the purity of Jesus Christ. Seven and a half feet tall, taller than most individuals, probably all of the individuals back then. They couldn't see over it. It shows man's inability to reach God's standard. It shows the natural man's inability to understand spiritual things, as we read about in 1 Corinthians. The natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. Then there was one door, not two, not three, not eight, only one way to approach the worship of God, and that was through the eastern side. Even as there is only one mediator, there's only one approach to God, and that is through His Son. There are not many ways to God. Now, a lot of people think there are many ways to God. One day they will know for sure there are not. There's only one approach to God. Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. Yet, that gate was 30 feet wide. It wasn't a tight gate, it was wide, which I think could speak of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for all men of all generations. The first thing one would see as they would enter this huge court that's 75 feet by 150 feet deep is an altar. An altar made of acacia wood and bronze. Acacia wood is the wood of the desert, called incorruptible wood. Bronze is often seen as the medal of judgment that we have covered already in our study. It speaks of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to take upon himself our sins, our judgment. He is the incorruptible Son of God, yet he took upon his own body on the tree our sins in his body. Then, after that, was the laver, where the priest would wash for service. The priest, upon entering the priesthood, would have one bath. It was never repeated again. But he had to repetitively wash his hands and his feet as he would perform the service of the tabernacle before he would go into the holy place. And it speaks of, uh, we've already seen some of the types of uh, the fact that we are all called priests. Jesus is our great high priest. But all of us are a kingdom of priests. We have been born again. We've been saved. You don't have to be born again, again, and again, and again. You can be saved once. You might fall from God's standard and require a, a cleansing for service and a cleansing to come into His presence, as we all should ask for forgiveness. But one bath, many cleansings. Then you get into the holy place, and on your right-hand side you see a table with 12 loaves of bread, representing the tribes of Israel. It was made out of wood, acacia wood, covered with gold, which I think speaks of the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ together. He was completely man, yet he was completely God. As you'd walk in to your left, you would see a lampstand with seven lamps that would be continually burning. One source of light only. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Directly in front of you would be another small altar, the altar of incense, where the priest would offer incense as people would be praying outside speaks of the role of Jesus Christ making intercession for us. Two altars, so. We see that you'd come to the first altar, the altar of brass, speaks of the cross. The altar of worship speaks of Jesus Christ as our intercessor. He ever lives to make intercession for us. The altar in the outer court, the altar of brass, speaks of Jesus' ministry when he was on earth. The altar in the inner court speaks of Jesus' ministry presently. He already suffered for our sins. It doesn't have to happen again. But that altar that is in the inner court is one that is a continual thing that Jesus does for us now. Then, if you were the high priest, you'd walk beyond the veil and you'd go into the Holy of Holies. And what was in that? Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And those angels, those cherubim that looked down upon that gold mercy seat that was sprinkled with blood... It covered the broken law. So that as the angels looked down, they saw blood that covered the failure of Israel to meet God's standards. Now we get to verse 22. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
Uh, let me ask you a question. I asked this this morning and I stopped, but it's really hot up here. I don't know if it's because I have a sweatshirt on. If, if, I, if it's, Maybe it's because of that. It's working because it, I'm sweating. And if maybe just the uh, stage isn't on. But are you hot out there or are you comfortable? Comfortable? Great. Verse 23. Also take for yourselves quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, these are units of measurement, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer, and it shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony. All of the utensils are named, and in verse 31 you shall... Speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it. According to its composition, it is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Oil often speaks of the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Before anybody could enter the uh, office of a king and a prophet in Israel, oil was poured upon that individual. They had to be anointed by God for the service. They, the oil was literally poured from head and it ran down the face, down the beard of these guys, and down the garments, all the way down to the feet. Notice it says in verse 33, Whoever compounds any like it. In other words, you are not to try to copy this. Something that is close to it. These are the ingredients. This is what it is used for, period. It has a specific use. It is a holy oil. There are some who try to imitate, I think, God's anointing. And... I think that some ministry is, is people watch it and they say, well, okay, that's how I have to do it. And they think they have to reach a certain decibel level when they speak. They have to suck in a lot of wind and move about and flail almost because that's the anointing, you know, when you speak a certain way. And I think God is concerned that we do His work not only, well, the way that he wants it done with the right motivation for it. And if God has gifted a certain person, then fine. If God hasn't gifted you, then don't do it. Don't try to put it on. Don't try to manufacture it or imitate it. Let it be from God completely. Notice it also talks about uh, an outsider. In verse 33, whoever puts it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people. This is to be used for the service of God, used by and for God's people. It is not for the outsider, not for the unbeliever. Paul in 1 Corinthians says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're only spiritually discerned. It's not for the outsiders. How many people do you know who are non-believers who say, gosh, I've tried to read the Bible, I can't understand it. It's because you're not, not a believer. And... It's all Greek to you, literally and figuratively. It's not going to make much sense. You're not going to understand it. You're going to question it. But when you come into a relationship with God, He answers certain questions. I've had people who didn't understand the things of God, and when they prayed to receive Christ, though they still didn't understand all of the Bible, they understood some spiritual truths. I remember leading one girl to Christ in Huntington Beach at the pier. She said, I will not come and pray this prayer until you answer questions. And I said, fine, let's meet tomorrow and answer some questions. And as I got to thinking about it, I said, no, wait a minute. Better yet, why don't you just pray right now, surrender your life to Christ tonight. I think you know right now that He is speaking to your heart and you're trying to put up a fight. But why don't you surrender your heart right now, come into a relationship with Him, the forgiveness of your sins, let's meet tomorrow. Write the questions down. I'll be happy to spend as much time as we need. She said, fine. And she prayed. And as she prayed, a little bit reluctantly at first, the Spirit of God broke her. And she started weeping. And after she dried her tears and closed her prayer, she said, 
I think my questions have been answered. I know in my heart that what I have done is exactly what God wanted of my life. I've made the right move, and I think the rest of the stuff will just be answered as I go. She became an insider. She was an outsider with all sorts of questions, couldn't understand it, couldn't figure it out. She made that step of faith, and her eyes were illumined in the spiritual sense. Verse 34 uh, is the recipe for the incense that is to be used. The Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, staked, which is resinous gum that oozes from the trees on Mount Gilead. Uh, It is also called the balm of Gilead. This is what it refers to. And anica, anica comes from a certain species of shellfish that resembles a crab and uh, galbanum taken from the leaves of a certain plant in Syria and pure frankincense with these sweet spices and there shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Now isn't that interesting? One would be tempted, it seems, if after smelling this compound of incense, that, you know, that smells good. I'd like to have some of that at home. I'd like to walk in my front door after a hard day of work and smell that incense. Oh, that'd be great. God says, don't do it. If you do it and you use it for that purpose to smell it, he says, you shall be cut off from your people. I think in application, we'd look at it this way. It is the attempt to make worship into something that is purely for the entertainment of the flesh. It's trying to cheapen what worship is all about, to appeal to the natural man. Now, I want to say that I love the variety and the forms of worship. I love to see forms of worship in all of the places around the world that I've traveled. And some like it uh, fast, some like it slow, some like it with organ music and stained glass, some like it real bouncy. And the issue really isn't the style, but the issue is when a person or a church starts tailoring the worship and tailoring the church service simply to appeal to the natural man. It happens all the time. People try gimmicks, programs that uh, will get the unbeliever in. I know churches that try to soft-pedal the gospel so much, they think, well, we better not even mention Jesus' name much because, hey, you know, Jesus turns people off. So let's sing some secular songs and talk about the heavenly being and talk about God, and we'll throw Jesus in every now and then. Maybe one song. I know a worship leader of a church in California who a few years ago was directed by the pastors to only sing one or two songs that mention the name of Jesus, lest he turn people off. Uh, People have tried slapstick humor, wrestling matches, all sorts of ways to get people in to listen. And here's the rationale. Since worldly people will not tolerate sound doctrine or biblical preaching, let's not have biblical preaching. Let's lower ourselves to their standard. It's not the biblical model. The biblical model is, okay, if they're carnal, let's raise them from that level of carnality to a spiritual standard. Let's not try to tailor it just because it smells good to them or tastes good to them. I know some that have actually surveyed unbelievers just to find out what they as unbelievers like to tailor their services around them. As if the gospel is some kind of a, a, a marketing strategy. Listen, we don't need salesmen. We need prophets these days. Somebody who will unashamedly speak the truth. The Bible does predict in the last times people will not endure sound doctrine. 
And so they think, well, oh, great, if they won't endure sound doctrine, away with sound doctrine. Let's do anything and everything just to get people inside the building. It's not the biblical model. Again, I want to say that I'm all for different styles of worship. I don't think that's the uh, issue here. I'm sure the Puritans would be shocked if they heard our worship tonight. Of course, the Puritans would be shocked if they saw men and women sitting together in the same room. Or they'd be shocked if they saw a PA system. They didn't believe in any kind of artificial means like that. But the issue is really that cheapening of worship that we said we see here. Now, chapter 31, great chapter. Because it speaks about how God uses people to do his work. God gave to Moses the details of the building of the tabernacle, and now he's going to raise up individuals to fulfill his will. He's going to call on artists and craftsmen to build it. One of the great things about God is that he has chosen to limit himself in using human instruments. God didn't have to use humans to do his work. In fact, I think God could get his work done a lot more efficiently if he used angels. In fact, in the tribulation period, God will send out an everlasting angel to preach the gospel to the inhabitants of the earth, and everyone will hear it. I mean, imagine an angel cruising around Albuquerque in the heavens, visible to all, and then from Albuquerque over to Phoenix and Phoenix to L.A., with a booming voice preaching the everlasting gospel. Don't you think that would get people's attention? I think it would create a lot of accidents, perhaps. But it certainly would get people's attention, and I'm sure it would be very efficient. But God has limited himself to use people. God delights in choosing the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And it is always humorous to me as I read the scriptures to look at and notice the individuals that God does select. Abraham. Abraham was so scared he had to lie about his wife. She's my sister. Because he didn't want Abimelech to kill him or to steal her. Yet he was called the father of faith. A man who lacked faith is called the father of them that believe. Moses, a murderer. A man with excuses. God used him. David, an adulterer and a murderer. Yet he was a man after God's own heart. He longed to be used by God. The Lord said to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. By the way, God selects imperfect individuals on purpose. Why? Because God can take an ordinary person and make that ordinary person a powerful instrument. And when God makes an ordinary person a powerful instrument, we will look at God and give God the praise and the glory, not the instrument. Take a scalpel and a brilliant surgeon. A scalpel is an ordinary knife for me. Give me a scalpel, I can cut an apple with it. That's about it. An ordinary knife, however, becomes a powerful tool in the hands of a skilled surgeon. And an ordinary human being, when an ordinary human being says, God, use me. I pour out my life to be used by you today. Use my life. It is amazing what God can and will do through somebody that's devoted and submitted to him. So that when the job gets done, we'll look back and not praise the vessel, not praise the scalpel, but the one who used it. Don't you think it would be foolish if after an operation... The patient in the recovery room said, Oh, doctor, would you please bring that scalpel in? I'd like to thank it. Oh, thank you, scalpel, for saving my life. Don't you think the doctor would be a bit insulted by that? Hey, wait a minute, Jack. I did the operation. This knife was simply a tool in my hands. Or how foolish it would be to walk out if somebody did a, a, a job in your yard of landscaping with shovels and picks for you to thank the shovel for the beautiful job that it did in landscaping your yard. The shovel was merely an instrument that was used by somebody who was skilled. And so the Bible says God chooses the foolish things of this world 
and at the end, so that no flesh would glory in his presence. Now, in chapter 31, this guy, Bezalel, I've always been drawn to him because of the wording that it uses. It says, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. First of all, he says, I have called by name. It is a personal calling. God sees you as an individual. He calls him by name. He names his father, his grandfather, and his background. He's from a certain tribe. The equivalent would be, I am calling Skip, the son of Louis, the son of Louis from Austria to do a specific work that I have called him to do. God is showing here that his choice is premeditated. It predates your birth. We are chosen in Christ, the Bible says, before the foundations of the world. I've called him by name, God said, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. God gave a calling, and then God gave the equipping. I've called him. I've given him wisdom and understanding. That's how God works. God doesn't look for a Ph.D. or a guy who has all of the togetherness necessarily in a worldly sense to do his job. God calls a person. Then God will equip a person. Now, I think that the person has certain desires and aptitudes. There's an old Jewish tradition that says that God selects people and uses people that already have a skill or an aptitude in a certain area. Then he further equips them for a spiritual work. Bezalel and this other guy, Ahaliab, are their names, were already skilled artisans. They enjoy doing it. But God further equipped them with his spirit, it says. That's the necessary equipment. He says, in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. To design artistic works, verse 4, in silver and in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. Now, get this. Here's their ministry. To design artistic works, to create creative works of art and craftsmanship. You say, okay, well, that's neat, but where's his ministry? You just read it. His ministry was that of an artist. We have sometimes an inadequate view of ministry. We think, well, now to be a minister, you have to have a three-piece suit, a honking Bible, and a southern accent. Actually, I would be sinning on all three of those occasions then, wouldn't I? God will choose different people to do different works according to the gifts and callings that he gives them. And sometimes it's to create beautiful works of art. To create beautiful songs. You know, sometimes we have this idea that God is going to call us into something we hate. Oh, you know, I, I better not say that I'll never do that because as soon as I say that, God will call on me to do that. I've heard that kind of... I don't think that's the attitude of God. That God wants to make you miserable. What job could I give that Christian to just make him miserable? God wants you to enjoy serving him. And God has given some of you creative abilities. Some of you are great at art. Well, express the gospel through your art. Some of you are songwriters and musicians. It's great. Too often the church has put down that form of expression. That could be ministry. God wants you to enjoy it. I'm sure that these guys loved it. When they were called, they said, yes, that's my calling, my ministry. God's going to give me a spirit to do it. Yes. I love it. Some of you are in the business world, your executives. And you just like that. You love that setting and that atmosphere. Hey, God can use you. That could be a ministry for you. That could be a calling for you. When I was working in radiology, and i got to tell you, I love hospitals. I know a lot of people go, oh, I hate hospitals. You know, the, the feel of them, the smell of them. I like it. 
I like the smell. I like the touch. I like the feel of a hospital. I like the way it's laid out. I like being in them. And I loved when I worked in the hospitals. I loved working in radiology. I liked the medical field. I like science and the applications of it. I even liked the emergency room. I saw effective ministry in the emergency room. And you got a patient and a doctor sewing up his scalp, he's got a captive audience. The guy isn't going to move if he's offended. He's going to sit still and listen. And I've seen doctors using that forum to share effectively the gospel. I had a roommate who was an emergency room physician, and he loved being in a crisis situation, being able to minister love and the gospel. He enjoyed doing it, and he was gifted to do it. And I remember somebody coming up to me and says, Skip, do you ever want to be in full-time ministry? My answer was, I already am. I already am. And so are you. Your life is full-time ministry in whatever capacity, whatever arena God has given you. You don't have to quit your profession and say, well, I better go be a missionary. You are a missionary. There are people where you work that would never come to church. Some of you have invited people to church because they've seen your lifestyle. They've seen your principles. They've seen your business ethics. And I love to see a person used by God in that setting. I admire a Christian businessman who has a high standard in ethics and behavior and attracts by his lifestyle and his ethics and his business people to the gospel. I think that's awesome. That's true evangelism. I love to see people gifted at art perform what they do and give God the glory. And they do it all unto God and it brings people to know Jesus Christ. I remember a guy in Hawaii. He was a friend of mine. He was a surfboard shaper. And he decided to have evangelistic outreaches and he would, uh, uh, you know, share the gospel there. But he would always invite people saying, hey, if you come, there's going to be raffled off tonight a surfboard that this guy has shaped. And I tell you, he got so many surfers in there to listen to the gospel because, hey, man, I might win the surfboard. They came for the wrong motivations, but I'll tell you what. He used shaping surfboards to preach the gospel. Boy, that's, that's awesome. I can relate to that. I, I love that. What is the best ministry? Here's the answer to that. The best ministry is the ministry God has for you. You can't say, well, the best ministry is that of an evangelist or that of a teacher or that of a missionary. No, the best ministry is what God has selected you to do. That's the best one for you. The best ministry for you is what God called you to do. Anything else is less. It's not fulfilling. It's like going into a shoe store. What's the best pair of shoes? They're going to say, well, what do you want to do? You want to run around the block or do you want to dress up as an executive? You don't want to wear Nike Airs if you're going to a business meeting. You don't want to run around the block in thongs. Depends on your activity and depending on what you're using them for, here's the best pair of shoes. The best ministry is what God has called you to have and to do. So Paul said, having gifts then differing according to the grace that is given to us. Verse 6. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of this other guy, of the tribe of Dan. Dan's an easy one. I can always pronounce him. I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, the labor in its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, the garments of his sons to minister as priests, the anointing oil, uh, the sweet incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded, they shall do. God called Aholiab along with Bezalel, and they had a ministry gifted by the Holy Spirit along with Moses and along with Aaron and along with the 70 elders that were to serve with Moses. All of them were called to work together. Not one person had all of the gifts to do it all. And that's how it is in the church, by the way, folks. Some people get this weird idea that the pastor does it all. 
He's the gifted counselor. He's the gifted administrator. He's the gifted evangelist teacher. He's the guy that visits, and he's always awesome at this and awesome at that. But it doesn't work that way. It's a coming together of many gifts. I see a pastor as sort of a sanctified talent scout. He's aware. He watches. He sees God raise up individuals. He sees a natural, God-given giftedness upon a person's life and says, hey, you know, you ought to try that. You ought to go for it. And pushes that guy, encourages that person to get involved in it and watch God raise them up and uh, work together. It's unfortunate. Sometimes, um, uh, most of the time, in any successful ministry. Now let me back that up. All the time, in any successful ministry, there are so many people that you are unaware of. I couldn't pull off what I do with all, without all the assistant pastors that I have who are gifted at what they do, who take a portion of the ministry and they become the hands and the feet and the eyes of the Lord in the lives of many people. Um, we have people who do our radio show. I get letters saying, well, I loved your show on the radio. I listen to you every day. But they don't see guys like Jay who mixes the show and the radio producers who mix it and send it to the different places around the country or the secretaries upstairs or in the tape room who get all the calls. They do so much and they do it so well. And I thank God for them. According to all, verse 11, that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. And whoever does any work in it, that person shall be cut off from his people. And in verse 18, when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now the Sabbath has already been mentioned in chapter 16 and chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. One would ask, why does God mention it again? Obvious answer, it's important to him. It's a pattern that God set of a six-in-one pattern. Work six days, rest. That's how God created the earth. But I think that in its context, it means this. Ahaliab and Bezalel, these artisans who were gifted by the Spirit of God to make things for the tabernacle, for the worship of God, may have been tempted to think, maybe I'm exempted from keeping the Sabbath. You know, it could be that that's for everybody else, but I'm a man of God. I don't have to keep these things. Oh, yes, you do. And if you don't, you'll be dead. And I think the application there is that whether you're a man of God or not, there are certain moral and spiritual givens and constraints that are given to us as well as anybody else. Well, I'm a man of God. I don't need to go to church that often. After all, I minister. You know, I know people that it often happens like this. They get raised up in a particular ministry in the church. They were so faithful, they'd come and, and take notes and listen all the time. After a while, they think, you know, I'm so busy. I've got my own ministry to do within the church. I'll just bag fellowshipping tonight, uh, listening to a Bible study. Ah, I'm beyond that. I'll just go to my little function. You're not exempted. You need to be fed. Whether you're an assistant pastor at this fellowship or you minister as a kinship leader, you need to be fed the Word of God in a corporate context of worship, like all of us. And so they had to keep the Sabbath as well. And uh, we need to keep the laws of the land as well, I think. Um, I heard of a uh, guy who was going to church and he was going really fast, and the cop pulled him over. The policeman said, where are you going so fast? He goes, oh, I'm, I'm late for church. The cop gave him a ticket so quick. He said, listen, you don't slow down. The next time you go to church, you'll be in a casket. Here, here's a ticket. And he gave it as, as the max that he could to teach him to learn the lesson. That was just a lame excuse. And... Uh, you know, imagine if a police pulled you over and you, well, I'm a pastor, and uh, I'm not under the law. That's what the Bible says. I'm exempt. I have actually been pulled over by the police and given a ticket 
And I remember one time in Arizona, I was pulled over and I was going fast. I was speeding. I was on my motorcycle. And he's writing up the ticket and uh, he says, uh, well, what do you do? I said, uh, <clears throat> I'm a teacher. Where at? Calvary Chapel. Where? <clears throat> Calvary Chapel. I'm a pastor of a church, all right? I broke the law. I tell you, I was so embarrassed. That changed my life after that. I mean, I thought, what reproach this is bringing to the gospel. Pastor caught for speeding on a motorcycle. Oh, was, I repented that night. And I repent every time I get a ticket. No, I, 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 I hope not to. Now let's get into chapter 32. Chapter 32 happens to be a blot on the record of Israel. It's an out-of-place chapter. In the midst of revelation, in the midst of God blessing His people and giving to them the law and the tabernacle, this chapter is sort of like the Romans chapter 7 of the book of Exodus. It shouldn't be here. It's out of place. Like in Romans, you see justification, sanctification. Then you have this struggle going on. Where Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am. And he struggles and he's set back because of his own, the weakness of his own flesh. That's what this chapter is like. It's a setback to them. It's a blot on their record. In fact, this chapter is mentioned by incident almost as much as God delivering them out of Egypt. Um, Paul referred to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to indulge in pagan revelry. Turn uh, to Psalm 106 for just a moment. Let's look at a couple verses together. As the psalmist goes over Israel's unfaithfulness, and uh, as the psalmist does that, he mentions this incident. Psalm 106, beginning in verse 19. They made a calf... In Horeb, they worshipped the molded image. Thus they changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea. Therefore he said that he would destroy them, had not Moses his chosen one stood before them in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. Now turn over a little bit more to Ezekiel chapter 20. It's mentioned again in this chapter. We're not going to read it all, but just a few verses. Ezekiel chapter 20, beginning in verse 5. Say to them, verse 5, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and lifted my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I lifted my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I lifted my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all the lands. And then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey. They did not cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt." Several times this is mentioned. We don't have time to go through it all, but chapter 32 is where they worship the golden calf. They had formed this calf while Moses was away. He had taken a long time. He had not come down from the mountain. And the people, because they don't have a visible leader, are now looking for a visible representation of God. And Aaron constructs a calf that looked like Apis, the God of Egypt, that strong bull, he made it out of wood, he overlaid it with gold, and he said, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. Let's read the story. 
in the time we have left. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. This actually, as commentators say, would indicate that they were still involved in idolatry. The earring in those days was a symbol of idol worship. They still had them. They were already told to give that as part of this money for the sanctuary. Uh, they had kept, no doubt, some of them had kept it. And now he says, okay, break them off, bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with an engraving tool, made a molded calf, and then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose up on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the Lord, oh, excuse me, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play or indulge in revelry and immorality. Now listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, Go get down, for your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Well, I would hate to have that as sort of my commentary by God about my life. Huh, what a stiff-necked dude. You know, I want to hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not, boy, we're glad you made it. This people is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. That's pretty heavy. God is actually offering to Moses the same deal he offered to Abraham. I took Abraham and I made a great nation out of one individual. I can do it again. I'll use you. I'll wipe these people out. Step back. I'm going to just toast them. And I'll make a great nation out of you. I think that actually would be quite a temptation for Moses. It would be for me. Especially this group of people who constantly complained against Moses' leadership. Constantly challenged him. I think if I would have been Moses, knowing the kind of person I am, I would have said, Deal. Moses didn't do that. Moses, verse 11, pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Do you notice the contrast between verse 7 and 11? God says, these are your people that you let out. Moses reminds God, uh-uh. They're your people, God, whom you have brought out of Egypt. Now, I personally think that God phrased it this way to elicit this response. To get Moses to be an intercessor for his people. Prayer begins with God. It's initiated by God so that we see the need and we enter into God's purpose. I'm going to blast these people, Moses. These are your people that you brought out. No, wait a minute, God. You're God. You said that you'd bring them out. You did it. Why does your wrath burn hot against them? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, He brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Now, a lot of people are really taken back by phrases and verses such as that one. They think, what, is God able to change his mind? No, he's not. The Bible says, God is not a man that he should repent, nor the son of man God does not change. God is immutable, the Bible says. But because we are humans and because God is transcendent over us, the only way for a human being who is finite to comprehend that which is infinite is for God to reveal himself in language, in pictures, in sentences that man can understand. And so we call them anthropomorphisms, forming God in human language. 
and anthropopathisms, describing the feelings of God, the emotions of God, in a way that humans can grasp and in a way that we can relate to with God. So it would seem that God is saying, you know, I'm changing here. And then Moses stands in the gap. Actually, God's purpose all along was to deliver them into the new land. God said he would do it. And God is eliciting a response of prayer with Moses. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I like that. He doesn't say Jacob, but Israel. Jacob was the man of the flesh. They're acting just like Jacob. But he sees them, Moses in his prayer, as the redeemed Jacob, the new name, Israel. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So, Lord, so the Lord relented from the harm which he said that he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, one on one side, one on the other. They were written. So the tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's the noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the voice of those who shout in victory, nor is it the voice of those who cry out in defeat. It is the voice of those who sing that I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Now that's sort of interesting. He chides God in one hand for being wrathful. God, how can you be so angry? And then he sees the people and he gets ticked off and he throws them down to break them. He himself is just fed up with being the leader. Yet you're going to see him intercede one more time. Verse 20, Then he took the calf which they had made, burned it in the fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the children of Israel drink it. He's hardcore. It's like, you know, taking your dog, if he does something inappropriate inside the house, and rubbing his nose in it. Just, okay, you guys want to worship this calf, you're going to drink it. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And so Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. Yeah, shift the blame, Aaron. Go for it. For they said to me, Make gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said of them, I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them break it off. Now listen to this. So they gave it to me, I cast it into the fire, and this calf just came out. <clears throat> yeah. Why don't you try that again, Aaron? Tell me the truth this time. You know, sort of like the TV commercials. They're too sensational to be true. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but I'm a skeptic when I see miracle products. They rub it on the car, no effort, just rub the wax, boom, it's like brand new, even though the paint is faded and not even there. There it is. Brand new paint job. It's like, mm, it's probably too good to be true because it's not true. He comes up with a sensational story. I just threw it in and it just came out. This is called the lame excuse. You ever heard them? Ever said them? We are masters at shifting blame, are we not? Well, I'm late because my wife. All right. I had an interesting conversation with a fellow pastor in Southern California this week, and he says, now tell me, it's got to be, it's true, right? Men are late because of their wives. It was this general statement. Or, well, you know, I lost my keys because every time I put them down, you put them somewhere. That's why I lose them all the time. Look, just admit it. You're a flake. You lost your keys. Take the blame. 
Then Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side, go in and out from the entrance to entrance, throughout the camp, let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. It is tough to explain that. I do not totally understand it, except to say that this was like extreme surgery. The cancer of idolatry was spreading rapidly and advancing. And like an advancing carcinoma, it is sometimes better to radically extract those cells to let the body live than to let it grow rapidly and take over the body. In some case, you can save the body if you extract the carcinoma, the cells. It could be that if these people were allowed to live, indeed, they would have never seen the promised land because they had capsized their trust in God. Now, one would ask, how could this even have happened? I mean, Aaron is like the chief guy of the priesthood. He's a spiritual leader. And they had seen miracle after miracle. They have um, seen the deliverance from Egypt, the opening of the Red Sea, that pillar of fire, that cloud. Actually, should it surprise us? I mean, even so soon after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, wasn't it Ananias and Sapphira that lived in hypocrisy and actually God killed them? The Corinthian church, who were filled with spiritual charismata, the gifts of the Spirit, were caught up in sexual immorality. Sometimes we walk on the mountaintop and we think, you know, because I'm on the mountain, when I get back into the valley, I'll never fall. But just because you've had a mountaintop experience doesn't mean that you won't have a tough in the valley or that you won't fall ever again. We must always be on guard. The greatest of us has the potential to fall in the grossest type of sin because we have an old nature. And the flesh and the spirit are always at battle. You can never let your guard down. You have to always remember you have weaknesses and stay away from certain areas and know that you have certain propensities and be on guard at all times. The problem with Israel is though Israel was out of Egypt, Egypt was not out of Israel. It was still in their hearts. That idolatry can soon come up, given the right circumstances. Have you found that in your own personal life that you think, boy, I've conquered that. I'm glad that's over. I'm not tempted anymore. And then you'll get into a situation and you will be amazed at how soon you are tempted in the very area that you thought you were strong in. And it scares you, doesn't it? Given the right circumstance, that old nature can rear its ugly head and be just as powerful. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man as opposed to son and his brother. And it came to pass on the next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Quite a prayer, isn't it? This is called confession. Moses identifies himself with the people and even with their sin. As if to say, oh God, if you'd only forgive them, but listen, I'm a part of them. And if you're not going to forgive them, then since I identify with them, you might as well blot my name out as well. Daniel did that. He said, Lord, we have sinned. Even though Daniel was very true to his God in captivity, he said, we have sinned. Nehemiah did the same thing. He was true to his God, but he knew that Israel had sinned. He identified with them and he said, we have sinned. How do you pray for this nation? You say, boy, they have sinned. You know what? 
I'm a big part of it. I grew up for many years as an American without Jesus Christ, and I have added to the sins of this nation for many years. And I stand before God tonight and say, God, we as a nation, including myself, have sinned against you. The first step to forgiveness is the willingness to confess sin. You have to agree with God on the topic of sin. That's what confession means. You agree with Him. And if we confess our sins, the Bible says, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God says, Moses, step back. I'm going to kill these people. I'll make the same deal with uh, you that I made with Abraham. Moses says, no deal. I identify with these people. I'm part of them. Blot my name out. Sounds a lot like Paul in Romans chapter 9. This is what he said. I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, the Jews. I could wish that I would be actually cut off from Christ if I could make sure that some of those brothers of mine would be saved. It's heavy. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now therefore go lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel, my messenger, shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. Now here's God's answer. No, Moses, I'm not going to kill you. I hold every person individual as an individual and individually for their own sin. I am able to keep record. I know that you want to identify with them. That's admirable. But I will blot out those who sin in verse 33 and 34. And then verse 35, So the Lord plagued the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron have made, has made. Look back at verse 25. Notice something. When Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Whenever there is a decline in faith, there is a decline in morality. It always follows in any situation in any nation. Decline in faith brings a decline in morality. The people hadn't seen Moses. The people were starting to waver in their trust of God. And it says they rose up to play. It speaks of a sexual kind of a playing, an immoral kind of an activity. They became unrestrained in their appetites. As it says also in Romans chapter 1, they didn't keep the knowledge of God retained in their memory, in their hearts. And God eventually gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which were unseemly. Men with men having sex. Women with women. God gave them up to their own desires. They abandoned faith in God. It eventually led to a decline in morality. It happens in any nation. It has and is happening in this nation. We have thrown God out. We have excluded God. We live in a post-Christian environment. Think again if you say America is the Christian nation on the earth. We live in a post-Christian America. And a decline in faith has brought that decline in morality. There was, it, it's gotten to the point where it seems like people aren't even thinking. There was something on television. Uh, was it last night? I don't remember. I was traveling this week, so I don't remember where I saw it. But Turn on the television, and there's this guy having this kind of a talk program, and uh, this gal's having a talk program, and she has this physician on, this doctor, and he's answering questions. And somebody calls in, this guy says, uh, Yeah, doctor, um, uh, real problem. Uh, my girlfriend and I have been uh, having physical relationships and she's gotten pregnant. And so the doctor said, Well, let me ask you, thank you for the call, let me ask you this. Uh, did you use any protection? He said, Yes, we did. We used condoms. The doctor said, Now, she's gotten pregnant. And then he asked him a lot of questions about it. He goes, Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you for having the courage to have safe sex. I'm thinking, this is absurd. He's congratulating him for having safe sex. His girlfriend's pregnant. This is a, there's nothing safe. 
And HIV is smaller than the human sperm. It can fit in between, in, in, through the holes of that condom that she's gotten pregnant from. I congratulate, you congratulate him. There's nothing safe about that. She's pregnant and a lot of people are being infected. But the thinking of even experts in this field is absolutely... I, I sit back sometimes, I just go, this is unbelievable. There's nothing safe about immorality. But people, when they leave the consciousness of God, become so blinded when it comes to morals. Just absolutely stone blind. Let's wrap this up. The children of Israel erected for themselves an idol, a visual reminder of God. They thought Moses split. He's not coming back. He left when the going was good, and we're all alone. We need some God. We need something to follow. There's now a gap in our hearts, some emptiness that we need to fill. Aaron, make us an image. First John concludes with John saying, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, I don't have any idols. I don't have images in my house. Listen, an idol is any replacement of God. Anything that you have replaced God with, it could be you. Maybe you are your own God tonight. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. I listen to the dictates of my heart. Congratulations, you have a God. You. You're worshiping you. Or you have your own system. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So many people say, well, what does it matter? Everybody does have a God. It doesn't matter what you believe in as long as you're sincere. That's like the doctor. Congratulations. Really? As long as you're sincere? Would you say that to a pharmacist who gave you the wrong prescription? Hey, it doesn't matter what you give me. As long as you give me something and you're sincere. No, you better be accurate with what you prescribe over the counter or what the doctor prescribes. When it comes to spiritual life and eternity, you best be accurate. You're dealing with life and death. And there's no safe unbelief. There's only one method. There's only one way that God himself has prescribed. Paul said, God has overlooked the ignorance of the past, but now commands everyone everywhere to repent. Have you? Have you had a crisis in your life where you have turned from what you know is wrong and surrendered your life to the living God? If not, then you haven't repented. And if you haven't repented, I can say with great authority you are not saved. You must repent and believe, the Bible says. You must acknowledge that you're a sinner. You must also acknowledge that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. You must repent of your sins and ask Jesus Christ to cleanse you and come in. If you haven't done that, you are not saved. If you would like to do that, you can do it right now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you desire no one to perish, but everyone to come to everlasting life. And how thankful we are, Lord, that just we can come together like this as, as simple believers, proclaiming the gospel, reading the scriptures, without a lot of hocus-pocus or a lot of rituals, just come as we are, be who we are, and you can change our lives, give us answers, give us hope. And that affects the way we live in business and with our families. It's just, it's awesome. We thank you, Lord. And we pray, finally, as we close, for those who might have come tonight, 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 for those